All right, and welcome to the next episode of Voice Club. I'll have to ask for your patience in listening to this introduction. I'm currently fighting off an alien invasion in my face and throat, chest and nose. And it's not just a product this time of an overactive imagination and consciously ingested substances. So, this is a conversation with Peter Lindbergh, host of the Intellectual Explorers podcast and co-author of a viral article titled The Mimetic Tribes of Culture War 2.0. This was a really interesting article and Peter's podcast is well worth engaging with if you're interested in collective intelligence, sense-making. It's an inquiry into what's most relevant in the noosphere, which is a fancy word really for saying the current dynamic of human thought as it plays out in culture. The idea space which we are all sort of scrambling about in. Now, I'm really hoping you get a lot out of this podcast. Take your time with it. As far as it goes, for me anyway, it's a pretty linear progression through a series of important ideas that are emerging in the online sense-making community to do with the polarization in our culture and the various crises in society we are riddled with, both as a result of emergent technology and its strange feedback cycles with our capacity to pay attention as well as age-old philosophical problems that have taken on a new relevance in today's world. We define a lot of the terms as we go, so if the term, for example, mimetic tribe seems alien, then uh, it's really quite simple, and all of that stuff I think we make fairly coherent and easy to follow along with, so that's all right. Now a few other quick things. If you're based in Australia and interested in sense-making and toxicity and where it comes from, how systemic features of society are impacting it and how this relates to developmental theory and psychology, then Jonathan Haidt is here for a series of events with the company Think Inc. He'll be here in major cities in Australia and also Auckland in New Zealand late July through early August. Tickets are available for that, so if you're interested, check out thinkinc.org.au. It's good to see companies bold enough to have these sorts of conversations and to make these ideas accessible to a large and physical audience in a space. The word space is a bit fucked these days, isn't it? It's like space this, space that, but whatever. That's how it is. So let's see. Lots of things are continuing to congeal and come together around this project and its various potential forms of manifestation. There's something exciting happening as much as it's taken its toll on my sanity and energy levels and certainly my health, or at least, yeah, it probably has taken a toll on my health, but that's okay. It's going to be worth it in the end. And uh, it's all about the journey, right? Fucking better not be totally about the journey. Hopefully the destination's all right. Like, <laughs> Got to reach a destination sometimes. Otherwise, it's just a... It's a bit, well, a bit fucking purposeless, isn't it? Oh, wait, no, it is about the journey. Oh, okay. Well, there are at least there are waypoints. If there's no meaningful waypoints, then there's no capacity to draw coherence, really, because there's nothing to bounce anything off, right? Unless you at least reach some sort of checkpoint, then how... Whatever. It's about the journey. That's all we'll say. I'll put that on my teapot or something, on a little post-it note, just to remind myself. That's the level of artistic... Uh, pattern making that we've got going on here. All right, well, that was an introduction into this. And and uh, we recorded this about six weeks ago. My 
enthusiasm and health levels were uh, stunning, fabulous, and brave. So I hope I hope you enjoy this conversation. It was a good exploration, not an interview, as I will continue to make explicit. You won't find interviews from this project, really. It's it's about uh, co-participation in the creation of something new, an adventure, um, looking to generate a sort of flow state that can enable insight and the participation in something something cutting and leading and novel and fascinating. Uh, that's That's part of the joy of creativity and exploration and ideas and culture and all the rest of it. All right then, okay, excellent. You should watch Chernobyl, great series, available on Netflix. I'll, uh, and, and, follow, and follow Peter, listen to his podcast if you're interested in sense-making and explorations into what's most relevant in the, in the noosphere. I do, I do really recommend it. And it was beautiful to have a conversation with someone who shares so much of the same impetus for collaborative explorations. So here you go. I hope you bloody well enjoy this conversation. Peter Lindbergh, I've thought of an interesting way to begin this. And if you don't mind, I'd love to read out the first two paragraphs from the excellent article you co-authored with Connor Barnes. Is that okay with you? Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. This is my audition to do the full audio reading later on. And this article is called (laughs) The Mimetic Tribes of Culture War 2.0, How Their Rise Made Infighting the Norm and How We Can Navigate the Resulting Culture War. Now, Medium tells me this is a 38-minute read, but I reckon I can do the first couple paragraphs in like a minute and a fucking half. So, all right, here we go. Until the last few years, it made sense to talk in terms of a red tribe and a blue tribe when describing political affiliation in the US. The red tribe was right-wing, populist, nationalist, religious, concerned by terrorism and valued sexual purity. The Blue Tribe was left-wing, globalist, internationalist, secular, concerned by global warming and valued sexual freedom. They had fundamental disagreements about what America or the West was, what it needed to become and how to get there. They even had a culture war. However, the red-blue dichotomy no longer provides a sufficient map of the political territory we find ourselves in. Enter mimetic tribes. We define a mimetic tribe as a group of agents with a meme complex or memeplex that directly or indirectly seeks to impose its distinct map of reality along with its moral imperatives on others. These tribes are on active duty in the new culture war. They possess a multiplicity of competing claims, interests, goals and organisations. While the red and blue tribes were certainly far from monolithic, any claim to unity between mimetic tribes is laughable. An establishment leftist who squabbles with the right wing, with the right, must contend with mockery from the dirtbag left. Meanwhile, the dirtbag left endures critiques from social justice activists, SJAs, who in turn are criticised by the intellectual dark web, IDW. The trench warfare of the old culture war has become an all-out brawl. There we go. <laughs> I think that's a, I think there's a really nice and tight opening paragraphs there. So I wonder, mate, if to begin with, you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what your interests are and perhaps what motivated you to co-author this article. Right, right. 
uh, first off, I think I am going to hire you to read the the audio book yeah. if it ever yeah. gets released. So yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, about myself. So I organized this group uh, called Intellectual Explorers Club here in Toronto. And it's kind of a group that is meant to explore ideas with maximum charity and uh, kind of expand our current map of reality, mm -hmm. right? And how we do that, we engage in book clubs, debates, lectures, and uh, just have kind of, uh, you know, spitballing type conversations and put ourselves at the edge of our thinking. Because that's sort of like a scintillating activity for myself is to put myself at the edge of, of my thinking. And it really was sort of started off as a selfish project for me uh, to create this group because I took philosophy in, when I was a university student and I hungered to get this intellectual engagement back in my life. So I created these, uh, this group. But then it kind of uh, transcended that purpose a little bit and inspired me to engage in, I guess, collective sense making. Because when I was uh, the host and facilitator of these, uh, these groups, and I, when I still, still happens today, there's this fragmented kind of almost schizophrenic feeling I get because yeah. all these people are just shouting their reality tunnels, their ideologies, their philosophies, and I'm trying to contain it all and at the same time facilitate a dialogue to get everyone sort of level set of what we're, we're doing here, what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that experience of being a host and facilitator at these in-person clubs inspired me um, partly to write this paper uh, and my co-author Connor Barnes, we, we sort of geeked out on the political culture war stuff for a while now. Yeah. And uh, we recognize that there's like multiple uh, what we call mimetic tribes or, or sort of different ways to review uh, view culture and reality, not just what it is, but what it should be. And what we dubbed culture war 1.0, it was sort of had this notion that, oh, there's a left and then there's a right and then they're fighting each other. Yeah. And I think that's a little bit uh, too simplistic of a narrative. Yes. Well, and so we've moved on to Culture War 2.0, where we have a whole bunch of competing tribes, which are calling meme tribes, or is it mimetic tribes, which is a slightly right. posh, posher word for meme tribe, of course. But yeah, and look, that seems appropriate. That seems fitting. I think, how many, what percentage of human beings, and then you have to pull this figure completely out of nowhere, of course, what percentage <laughs> of human beings consume memes on a daily basis? It's, it's like, it's a good, if you have access to a screen, you're essentially consuming memes all day long. And, and that's memes in the, in the graphic type, we of course know and love memes, meaning ideas, or perhaps what ideas that are, that, 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 that sort of uh, create or are part of your sense-making lens that replicate themselves, of course, are a more ubiquitous phenomenon and are part of the sort of frameworks we use to make sense of the world. So we've moved on to Culture War 2.0. How would you mm. say that's defined in contrast to Culture War 1.0? Right. So I, I think the idea of Culture War 1.0, which was prevalent in the, the early 90s with the, the Pat U. Buchanan and the, the idea of the religious right trying to kind of impose a religious narrative, a Christian narrative on the American culture and it being pushed back by the secular left. Mm -hmm. So there is this idea that there was two, a left and a right competing with each other. But I imagine there was, it was fragmented as well, but it just wasn't salient given the media landscape at the time. Yes. But thanks thanks to the internet, uh, we're sort of like exposed to all these ideas. Mm -hmm. And I really like the uh, metaphor of the, the noosphere, like viewing 
kind of the, at least the infrastructure and the hardware of the internet as a brain, and then the content that's floating around in it, the memes that are flowing, floating around in it as this big collective mind. Yes. And currently this collective mind is fragmented, it's in disagreement, it's combative, all that type of stuff. And so I guess that's the, to answer your question, the key distinction is sort of uh, this fragmentation is more salient now. And when people on the, the left just call everyone like, you know, everyone's a Nazi or this, but if you kind of zoom in on that container of what some people consider the right, there, there's very little disagreement amongst all these different kind of segments. They might have broad coalition and they have, might have broad agreement, but they're infighting maybe more so than they're outfighting. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, one of the particular infights you mentioned is between the alt-right and the alt-light. So the alt-right, of course, don't like the alt-light for trying to, what, limit some of their claims to do with, I suppose the alt-right is genuinely typified by, uh, well, all of a sudden we're talking into this territory and I have to formalize my thoughts on it in a way that's coherent. <laughs> well, they're typified by that kind of ethno-nationalist tendency and they take that ethnic group identity very seriously in a way that for everyone else is some mixture of terrifying and incorrect or at least irrelevant when it comes to genuinely partitioning or recognizing the value in human beings and of course they don't like the old light i mean you often i suppose hate what you see as the turncoats within your side more than anything else, which is, of course, we see a phenomenon we see on the left as well. And someone like Christina Hoff Summers identifying as a feminist, getting absolutely right. railed against by the more radical feminists. And just recently, she's actually been over here in Australia and I didn't attend the talks, but um, I heard that she was received very poorly to many jeers from the crowd. Claire Lehman, the editor and founder of Quillette, made a post to this nature on Twitter, sort of decrying the lack of good intellectual faith she was met with in Australia and in particular by feminists that from a broad brush you would take as mm -hmm. part of the same tribe, but um, certainly aren't of course. And you have fights between the intersectional feminists and um, other kinds of feminists. So we have this fracturing. And I have this, uh, this definition here of mimetic tribes that you give in the article, and you define mimetic tribes as a group of agents with a meme complex, memeplex, that directly seeks to impose its distinct map of reality along with its moral imperatives on others, right? And the goal is to win the culture war, or at least not to lose. So an important change, you might say, or if it's not a change, just a bringing to articulation something that might always have been the case to some degree amongst human beings, which is that rather than just a political position, there are immediate moral imperatives, moral attitudes associated, and moral judgments associated with your identification to any one of these tribes, which is one mm. of the things that makes conversation really, really difficult. Because as soon as you get a little trigger that someone belongs to this tribe or that tribe, whether it's the color of their hair or who they listen to on a podcast, all of a sudden, I presume something even physiological happens, you know, you maybe get the flood of this sympathetic response in the nervous <laughs> system and it's like, oh shit, this is a motherfucker. Like I went into um, a bar the other day where we recorded an event, a conversation which will be out soon. I went back in there to talk to the manager and thank him and ask if I could use his voice, but he had quit. And they were like, yeah, when you put this event on, that was the thing that did it for him. And he quit after that. And I was like, is that a joke? Um, I'm not sure if it is. But anyway, this, this um, 
lady behind the bar was wearing a t-shirt that was down with the patriarchy or something like this and we had a nice interaction but then I mentioned the t-shirt you know and I, I was thinking what tone of voice do I need to use here so I can mention the patriarchy or something like this without it causing like some kind of attrition that will stop her stop this interaction and I said well, what comes after the patriarchy but you know I have a private school accent from England so generally speaking if I was to say <laughs> something like what comes after the patriarchy it might be understood as some kind of conflict you know and she turned away and there was it felt like that little bit of tension there and she wasn't willing to continue the interaction so you have to find some ways of bridging or speaking to ways of relating to someone who might be very very critical of someone who doesn't let's say, embody the right memes, present the right memes to be taken as part of the tribe so that you can have a certain kind of conversation. Um, mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, I'm pretty sure you've identified the kinds of people who wish to do this as having their own tribe. Mm -hmm. Is that right? In the, the article we rewritten or sort I'm, of I'm, in my I'm not sure in the article. I think later, like I'm, I'm interested in your, um, in your labeling of it's the meta game. I mean, they've got, they've got the concept of mimetic mediators, right? Right. But I wonder if, yeah, I mean, what we're seeing, I suppose, is some network of people emerge right. who are willing to have these kinds of conversations. And then, you know, you gotta be careful, I suppose that it doesn't become a tribe of its own in, in some sense, although maybe it's not such a big deal. Right. Right. Yeah, I want to I definitely want to uh, double click on the metagame. But to briefly circle back on that story of the down with the patriarchy shirt, shirt that the that person was wearing, uh, just to share my own similar story. When I was mm -hmm. at the, a coffee shop recently, there's this girl, she had this tattoo said that God is a girl. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I said, hey, uh, how come God, God is not uh, a woman? Right. I, I said that <laughs> that's kind of like a playful little, yeah, little yeah, joke. Yeah. That's good. And then she and then she uh, thought like, oh, I thought you were going to say, why God's not a man? And I was going to be like, ooh. And then she got really kind of like angry, right? Yeah. Uh, but in a, in a, also in a sort of a, a subtly playful way. And then uh, and then I got my my coffee. Then I'm like, uh, you know, to, to inquire into that, uh, why did you assume that I was going to say uh, God is a man, right? And, and then so I engaged in sort of like a meta communication about yeah. the, the communication that just occurred. And we actually had a, like a really great conversation. She's like, huh, I, did, I don't know why that uh, that's the first thing that came to my head. And then we just kind of engaged further and we had a good chat. And I like this idea of meta communication. And this lends itself to this meta game. The idea that you can kind of step out of sort of the game that you're playing, the finite game that you're playing, and then see all the other type of finite games and have a conversation about it in yes. a sort of a non-judgmental way. Yes. Yes. No, I think that's I think that's an excellent idea. And on the ground level, that takes a lot of, I would say, skill when it comes to being able to identify what are the trigger points, really, for people and their particular right. meme plexes. But in another sense, and and I don't really approach things like that when I when I get about and talk to people, I would which I which I do quite a lot and and in fact, I actually have an event coming up. I haven't put it online yet, but the posters are up at the venue. It's not going to be recorded. And it's going to be a step into trying to be this role of, uh, I can say it to you. I wouldn't, I'm not going to say it out loud exactly to people at the event. I'll be trying to be a mimetic mediator. <laughs> but, right, 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 nice. <laughs> but between you and I and our listeners, I suppose, we'll be having this event titled Ego, Self, Masculinity and Femininity. 
I'm going to get together a panel of people and I'm going to have a wireless mic and can try and set up the space of this bar so that there is sort of a circular facing or it's kind of like a, a long rectangle, but people sitting on the perimeter and be having a conversation and an interactive forum, just having people express what masculinity and femininity mean to them and to attempt to create this container where it is about this co-exploration, where most importantly, what is valued well, a few, a few things are valued, but but one important thing for our purposes right now is the belief in the dignity of the human spirit. Just the idea that there's something fundamental about all of us that has value, and it's at um, this more fundamental, existential, perhaps even spiritual level, where we are ultimately connected and where some important source of our value is derived from. And, and I think, you know, and I can speak a little bit about what I mean about that perhaps now or another time, but, but I think there's something about embodying that place of connection and a genuine goodwill towards other human beings, like a real embodiment of that, that I believe, at least I hope in many cases, I certainly believe for a lot of them, that it's possible to conduct interactions from this place and have that be a way to I mean, disarm might be a, you know, a, a functional word here, but certainly find some way to talk to the part in someone that's really willing to relate authentically. And, mm. but nevertheless, depending on when the, 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 the particulars of a given person and how receptive they are for dialogue, perhaps a state of their nervous system to some degree, you might have to really make sure not to tread on the wrong the wrong landmines and mm -hmm. so you can begin this kind of discussion but i think it's a really worthwhile endeavor and i would invite everyone listening right now to to follow you and all the things you post about it there's a couple other people in this network who have got really good ideas and who are really tackling this question of how to genuinely have effective meaningful conversations on the ground given the context of this culture war 2.0, which is something we're really only beginning to get to, to grips with, in my opinion. Right, right. I like that idea that you're doing, that in-person event. Because I think that the topic of masculinity, especially, is, is a trigger-worthy on uh, right. many fronts. Right, right. It's like, right. It, uh, I like the term that the metamodernists use, uh, philosophical allergies, right? And that's right. the word toxic masculinity, or just masculinity itself is such a, such a, a word that has so much emotional weight into it. So that's a good topic to engage uh, in mimetic mediation with. Mm -hmm. uh, and then just to, to touch on that point that you made about kind of the spirit of engagement. And it's like, you know, you can get, this is what kind of separates me and what I think I'm doing from sort of like the, the rationalist or the, the, the more atheistic tribes, how they're really concerned with truth and objective truth and getting things right. Yeah. And I do think that is important, but when it comes to dialogue, I'm more interested in the act of understanding, mm. right? It's like, just shine a light on your map of reality and just understand it as best as I can. And I'm probably gonna get it wrong. I'm probably gonna stumble. It's probably gonna be messy. But just that spirit of understanding, I think people feel that. And yeah. it's disarming. And then it's like, okay, the fight or flight response is not being uh, uh, enacted right now. Yeah. This person, it means goodwill and let's have a talk. Yeah. And I think, Regardless, from my experience engaging with, with many different people that are belong to these these mimetic tribes, you can engage in dialogue if you come in with that spirit, or you contain, or you create a container, you know, a modality or in-person uh, kind of uh, framework that yeah. allows for it. No, oh, 100%. I mean, 
What what do we like in interactions with people? We like well, we, we bloody like to be heard. I think on some level we like to know and feel that in some sense something that's authentic to us about what we want to achieve is in principle it's like it's on the table for good development it's on the table for growth when we're coming into a relationship with someone it's it's more meaningful if a part of us that's really willing to grow and develop is is in touch is is activated and it's kind of being reciprocally realized with someone right and and this can take place in an in intellectual conversation but but for the some of the reasons we've discussed that 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 part of your moral identity can be tied into political beliefs and various political signals given the fragmentation of culture and various crises we're facing yeah it becomes important that where your comprehension of virtue sits that that's being that that's being heard that that's being understood i mean to get somewhere mm. jointly you might want to go you first have to try and understand where someone is so i i totally i totally agree with you and then mm-hmm. you know the ideal of course is once you can co-develop that container that's something really quite productive could be done with it and i know that stuff that excites both of us quite a lot and is part of the part of there's a couple memes out there collective intelligence and coming into flow states in conversation this this whole notion of collective sense making that we're seeing play out online with channels and podcasts like rebel wisdom and satellite thinkers to the idw like jordan hall and jamie wheel and some of these guys really getting involved in trying to have productive conversations about well the first thing is to get clear on precisely where we are so it's about coming into that you know understanding and so then we might figure out and connect to yeah what is healthy in us what is good in us that can connect and uh, imagine the world in a way that um, represents the world accurately enough so that effective decisions can be taken and executed within it and it must start with understanding i totally agree and um what you said there about the values and we listed on that white paper and that sort of that spreadsheet that I recommend your listeners check out mm-hmm. there's a spreadsheet that lists all the mimetic tribes and they're sort of like the, their taxonomy. And we said the, we labeled it the sacred values. Right. right? And I, and I think a lot of these, uh, in tribes and people, it's like their sacred values are always at threat and they're always like need to be ready to defend them. Mm-hmm. And so if you shine a light and say, I'm going to understand your sacred value, right? Yep. It's almost like an act of love on their sacred value. Yeah. And then it sort of opens the door, says, you know what? Uh, like, I have a different sacred value and let's have a discussion about it. Yeah. But sort of that 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 move of understanding and making sure you let the other person know you understand, I think should come first if you want to have that dialogue to take place. Yes, I think it's absolutely critical. So what I did yesterday is I took myself out and I went through that article and I went through some of your recent tweets and I have here a list of, uh, <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's my fucking research. Um, so I have here a list of items that all of which I think we could discuss for quite some time. And I think we've set the stage now decently well enough. I mean, before I touch on any of these, I might ask you, because I think how many meme tribes do you identify? Is it like 20? On the spreadsheet, there's a lot, right? But then there's smaller main ones. There's more than 20 maybe even. Yeah, I think there's 32 that we listed. But uh, of course, there's many more uh, yeah. that you know I got introduced to 
after writing that paper. Uh, for example, the metamodernists, I was somewhat aware of them, but I didn't realize that they were bigger than they actually were. And they really digged the paper and they reached out to me. So that's one that I would include if I were to rewrite that. But yeah, we listed 32. Yeah, cool. What are the most relevant ones for the current war, would you say? Um, I would say the social justice activists, the intellectual dark web, um, and maybe some of the the alt-right, alt-light type tribes. Yeah. You also yeah. have the, the dynamic of the establishment left and right as well, which play a very interesting role still because you would say they're the ones that are uh, they're pulling the reins of mainstream media. And so really for a large percentage of the population and still in some sense, look, if the world really was burning, I would look at Reddit and then once Reddit had basically convinced me I probably still, I'd still try and find a news article that was from one of the, you know, one of the mainstream um, media right. outlets and be like, okay. So I, even though, even though there's a lot of criticism, you know, the mainstream media is dead and what have you, it's like, there's still something maybe for our generation. I think part of our collective psyche still has a, an affinity for these, for these institutions. And in some sense, the, Part of the frustration, I mean, when you see people like Eric Weinstein, he's been tweeting recently, you know, obviously him and Brett tweet all the time and they're very much in, involved in saying things when there are particularly egregious articles written and published in the big establishment institutions that you would hope for more from, whether it's The Economist or The New York Times. There's still this sense of many people want to save what they see as a decline in institutional credibility. So I think mm. that establishment left, right, meme tribe dichotomy there is still very relevant. And I would say for people that don't engage online as much or really take it as, as seriously, I, I think opinions are still very much informed by these, by these places. And actually, here's an interesting one as well. You've got, a, you've, and I know you, you mentioned this, it's the, um, I forget the, the name of the tribe, but it's the one that Alex Jones is the, oh, yeah. the the key player for now you don't call it this but it's got to be it's got it's that mixture of schizophrenic tendency tendency conspiracy theorists and it's like no one realized how many of those motherfuckers there really were <laughs> like he's got a pretty big audience and um right. he paints a he paints a very very interesting picture and the reality is is that of course we've seen different instances uh with pizza gate and other things like that where real mm -hmm. um, physical consequences have taken place because of because of this kind of what spastic sense making in some sense so you right, know right. but there's a lot there's many there's many more you mention and uh, the the Jordan Peterson sorters that's one right. um, and uh, you know the centrists and classical liberal centrist types sort of fall into that category and and then you have the part of the left that's critical of, let's say, the SJAs, but still take themselves to be, let's say, rescuing what they see as the keener, less understood Marxist points. So they might be very, very critical of capitalism and think that just a pure rejection of anything socialist based on taking what they would see as historically ill-conceived and ill-implemented versions of Marxism or socialism or what have you as being um, an ineffective 
analysis or and, and that actually well, given the problems with capitalism we need some sort of hybrid and it falls more towards the socialist side and how dare you stop the conversation here because look at all this exploitation on the capitalist side of things and that's a very big you know I, that's a that's a very big tribe too so right and it's like um i think you did a nice job of uh describing all this sort of fragmentation and mm -hmm. all these reality tunnels that are sort of coexisting in this this noosphere and i like that the ken wilber quote is that no one's smart enough to be 100 percent wrong right you know? and uh <laughs> even the, the 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 wildly uh conspiracy tribes like QAnon, right they're like deeply looking at the deep state and mm -hmm. nobody else is really looking at them as deep as they are. Yeah, yeah. So they might stumble on something that nobody yeah. else is, is, is stumbling upon because they're looking at it. Yeah. So it's such intensity. Yeah. Um, and so I, I kind of like the idea of uh, just kind of being charitable and seeing, first of all, recognizing what they're saying on their own terms and seeing what I could take from that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then uh, to, to, to mention uh, the whole kind of right left dichotomy. And I should say with this article right off the bat and then kind of any other mimetic artifacts that I intend to create, I'm, I'm basing it off the or I'm inspired by that post-rationalist. There's this tribe called the post-rationalists and they, they kind of operate on this mo uh, motto of it's better to be interesting and wrong than right and boring. Right. Because being interesting and wrong sets up other people, inspires other people to pursue truth or rightness yes. or continue the conversation right yes. continuing this infinite game of, yes. of of the public conversation keeping it alive and so with this the white paper what we did called mimetic tribes and culture war 2.0 which is the the crux premise there is you know we're living in a fragmented culture war i'm not too attached to that that idea yes right it's just sort of it's yes. interesting enough that it hasn't really been presented in the way we presented it that it created this this dialogue that it did around it but I do think there's a lot of validity and uh, a need for this kind of like just general right-left dichotomy. Yes. And, you know, before the the idea of the right-left was like, okay, uh, right was about small government, left was big government. And now they said it was like right, it was about or, or open borders versus closed borders, which I don't think is, um, you know, you can necessarily divide that to right or left because there's, you know, there's left-wing populists and right-wing populists. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I find interesting, at least in the culture war setting, is this sort of what I like to label, or I'm currently labeling, the the woke coalition. Right. Right. And the woke coalition consists of uh, social justice activists, which you know some people uh, call the social justice warriors, Black Lives Matters, uh, Me Too, and then the other coalition is uh, what I what I'm currently dubbing the the Red Pill Coalition. Right. And this consists of the alt right, the alt light. Um, the manosphere and all the masculine tribes. And then you got this sort of like this, these centrist intellectual dark web sorters, you know, the optimists that they're kind of like in between this nebulous space. They're trying to push back on both. But they're um, it's funny, the, the woke tribes view them as like a gateway drug to the red pill. And the mm -hmm. red pill tribes view them as some useful ideas to this global conspiracy or whatever globalist conspiracy. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're yeah. not getting love from any of the sides. But I view the culture war is this woke coalition, red pill coalition, and the centrist in the middle. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's fair to yep. to say this is existing. Yeah. And yep. then what I'm flirting with, this idea of flirting with, is that maybe it's a political movement, maybe it's not. But there's like if you have that spectrum, that political spectrum of you know uh, left woke, uh, red pill right, and then centrist in the middle, then there's this meta category right above it, floating above it, right? Yeah. Yeah. The hyper woke. Then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you can you can you're you can have a temperament or you can have sacred values that maybe resonate with all kind of these buckets, mm -hmm. but then you can also be meta. You can also be a meta gamer, mm -hmm. right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like a liminal state, a cognitive liminal state that you can visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Well, I think the meta game is great. And look, when I when I first came across your article, I came across it through a link that Jordan Hall put to it in his 2019 right. AOC update. And I'd actually quite like to do a reading of that and release that as well, because that's also another a brilliant article. And um, Jordan Hall, I can't recommend his writing on Medium enough. But when I, when I read your article, I was like, this is really good. This articulates things that are helpful and it's sort of clued on to the memes of the times. But I did think, you know, there's always gonna be a little disagreement about precisely what you're capturing in each category. And some of them might be like, you know, does that qualify as a category? And many of people, of course, belong to multiple. And I know that's something you'd, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't reject at all. And so the point would just be something like, yes, these are, you know, maybe only relatively few are actually, to be honest, some of those, some of those categories are so big and the culture war is so entrenched that actually some people's identities do seem to be almost entirely within one camp. However, even right. in that case, these camps aren't fundamental categories of human being, right? There are deeper existential realities to what we are and, and, and you know, it's uh, it's very much a cultural, political level of analysis that's important for to to sort of understand, engage current cultural dialogue. But the thing is, is that of course we we have these aspects of us that are, are deeper and 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 cross cut with the affinities of many of these groups, and it's relating on that level that is well, we sort of covered that before when it comes to understanding. There's the intellectual part of that in terms of what are your sacred memes. But then there's also this dropping into that space and people talk about it as liminal space. I'm, I think that's a fine word. I think there are other words to use to describe it. I'd probably, I'd probably prefer something slightly more existentially sort of poetically minded. We can drop into this space of shared relationship with each other very much takes place in that moment there. And, and that becomes and is the most real thing. And we can we can we sort of intuitively map on these different kind of patterns that enable us to come into communion with each other in in more effective ways. So I guess it's you know it's probably unnecessary to stress, but but it, let me stress it for us that these categories aren't meant to trap people in them. You know, um, mm. quite quite the contrary. However, nevertheless, the idea of the the meta game and playing the meta game. Which, I mean, if I'm if I'm getting you right, to, to put it into other words, would be something like the capacity to recognize the the values in different tribes and to incorporate other levels of analysis that look to explain the rise of this kind of tribalistic phenomenon altogether. So maybe taking evolutionary theory, maybe existential philosophical theory, maybe some kind of spiritual approach where you're looking to understand the proclivities within individuals that have them align with these different tribes, not just proclivities within individuals, but also conditions of the time and economic conditions of the time and technological changes of the time and different crises we're facing that might put pressure on people to be part of one group or another. And so the idea is that in separating oneself from an affinity with one particular memeplex, let's say, you're able to recognize how those different parts of a fractured culture might actually be one maneuvering whole that is worthy of love in all its areas and worthy of tending to. 
part of what flagged up there is like some people be like, well, what about those alt-right types? Or what about those real radical leftist communist types? Are they worthy of love too? It's like, yeah, actually, in some important sense, they have to be. That doesn't mean you endorse what their propositions are or endorse what their actions are. Like far from it. You can put a hard no to that. But that there is a human being to understand there, right? That there is something about that proclivity and about that position in society that is reflective of a broader phenomenon that's that must be understood and so in, in, in from an important sense must be related to must be really held right must not just be forced away so that you're not paying attention to it and not really trying un to understand it yes you have to look at it with some sort of open mind so you can at least get clear on what the on what the current map is we're working with. Otherwise, how on earth could you hope to fit it to the territory or what the territory should be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, there's a lot of threads I can go down there. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm currently flirting with a panentheistic view of God right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's the idea that, you know, God is reality, right? And so if you, if you love God, then you love reality and everything that reality consists of and then all these different individuals or these tribes they have a map of reality right and so in a way understanding their map of reality is loving that map of reality mm -hmm. and not that's to say that you're agreeing with it or you think it's accurate or you think it's right or moral or all that type of stuff but just this having putting some understanding to it i think is uh, um, a useful useful exercise mm -hmm. and sort of what i like is sort of having a map of maps Right. Right. So this is uh, cultivating a map of all the, the various maps of reality out there. And let's say if somebody is truly evil or it needs to be stopped, you know, like it's like Sung Soon, like, you know, your enemy, know yourself, know your enemy. But if you have this kind of cartoonish version of your enemy, you don't really understand them, then you right. can't really even effectively fight them. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's on multiple levels. I think it's an important exercise to have an accurate understanding uh, of, of somebody else's map of reality. Yeah, 100%. All right, so here's a couple interesting things we might do. I've got, I've written down each of the six crises that you recognize in the article. Mm -hmm. So we could talk about those, but you know, and perhaps, and you know what, perhaps actually, perhaps actually we'll come back to that because I want to, because you mentioned the, the blue pill and the red pill before which right. of course comes from the matrix and is has definitely entered popular culture in a, in a major way right and it's like the red pill as being the thing that wakes you up from the matrix or the status quo that was in a this state of illusion so the red pill is this this uh this shot of disillusionment but the thing is about the red pill is that it doesn't it's things shouldn't stop at the red pill, right? You might you might be critical of something. You might recognize that, hey, the emperor has no clothes. Like there's something real strange about what's going on here. And actually I feel more in touch with what's really real given I understand this world from this new perspective. But what happens then, right? Because what matrix have you just woken up into that you think is real because it's differentiated from your previous matrix, but our strings are always being pulled by something, it seems to me and mm. enter here what if i'm right might be if you want to continue with this metaphor of pill taking we have the the gray pill right. right so maybe you could describe to me what the gray pill is 
Right, right. And this uh, this pill territory is, you know, it's like a confusing, confusing ground uh, because some groups co-opted, some groups understand it differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right. It started it started with the the, the matrix. Um, the blue pill is sort of like uh, you maintain the reality that you currently understand, and then the the red pill, uh, you're you're shocked into the truth. Um, and then you know, the the what I said, the, the red pill, the, the right, the reactionary right, they kind of really co-opted this meme of the red pill. And I think uh, it started with the manosphere or the, the men's rights activists. And then it kind of got uh, enlarged to the alt-light, alt-right, and then, then neo-reactionaries. But the crux of it, like the red pill being awoken to the truth, you can say um, the woke tribes have, that's, that's their version of the red pill, being woke to the systemic discrimination of society yep. that's being red pilled yep. right yeah and then uh, in addition to this the the those the dissident right the reactionary right they really seem to run with this pill metaphor so there's like the blue pill there's the red pill there's a black pill like you're, <laughs> yeah. you're just so nihilistic and then now there's just something called the honk pill like a honk pill good uh which we can maybe that's a rabbit hole we can get good. down into but uh i mentioned their great pill in the article is actually the neo uh, post-rationalist tribe uh venkatesh rao from ribbon farm he coined that term he basically said that you know we're born into the blue pill we don't actually take a blue pill we're just born into everyday reality sure and then there's a the multitude of different red pills that we take that kind of like oh make us see the truth but then the gray pill sort of muddies the waters a little bit it adds uncertainty to the mix it adds nuance right and then that could lead to an existential crisis it can lead to confusion but um he argues, and I, I tend to agree with it, in order to fully feel intellectually alive is to start being comfortable with being gray-pilled. Right. Yes, no, absolutely. So really the, the gray-pill as what I just hear there is the quite obvious, if I can use that word, quite obvious point that sense-making continues, you know? Right, <laughs> right, right. And, you know, and I think many people will be very cognizant of the nuance and uncertainty that is very much a part of of our makeup and the reality we confront so yes i do think it's appropriate for that nuance to be in there good good all right okay so let's see we've got these six these six crises which are still going to get to because i'm interested in asking that this is some of your recent tweets there's two terms that mm -hmm. came up I want you to explain to me. I don't know if they relate to each other, so I apologize okay. if I'm chucking you tangents here, which I suppose I've been doing anyway. One is image sacrifice, and the other is mm. cancel culture. What, what do you mean by these mm. things? Okay, uh, this is this is might go down a rabbit hole, and this is at my edge of my thinking. Because sure. when I tweet these things in these moments of inspiration, <laughs> I'm just kind of like bar barfing on an idea. Yeah. It's totally uh, speculation, and I'm not uh, propositionally attached to it. But um, are you familiar with the the idea of cancel culture? I read into it a little bit after I saw your tweet, but no, I couldn't formulate it for you. But it's probably in there. If you give me a little bit, I'll I'll be I'll be with right. you. It's um. Amongst the woke tribes uh, and mainstream media, it's quite popular to use, this person has been canceled. Yes. If they said something controversial, if they said something uh, racist, <laughs> uh, sexist, yeah. and then they're cancelable, right? Yeah, they they can be cancelled from canceled. mainstream society, polite society. Right? You're cancelled. And then yeah, totally. I you're cancelled, right? And then there's, there's a lot of uh, pushback, not only... Um, 
from like the right sort of tribes, but also within the woke tribes, there's pushback on this. Like Kanye West, even though he got canceled by wearing that Trump hat, uh, he's you know he did the tweet, "We should cancel cancel culture." And I think Katy Perry just did a speech that we should be careful who we cancel. We should be kind with forgiveness. Yeah, because the idea of cancel culture, you know, you could just really lose your 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 reputation, ruin your reputation, especially if the accusation is not 100% true. Mm-hmm. And you could also lose your livelihood mm-hmm. with that reputation, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like people feel like they're walking on eggshells or they're at the moment's notice they could be canceled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, so, uh, <laughs> and so from that idea, uh, this is my me at the edge of my thinking and the crazy speculative thought, is that cancel culture kind of got detached from its original purpose of maintaining purity within the woke tribe. And then they just want to, it's like a cancel God. I like the idea of the cancel God got emerged and and the cancel God needs images to sacrifice, to be sacrificed to. Mm-hmm. And then these, these sort of uh, the red pill tribes are playing with this. Like, okay, what, what can we sa- uh, sacrifice? What images can we sacrifice to the cancel God now? Okay, let's sacrifice Pepe the frog. Let's kind of co-opt him, make him evil. Let's uh, co-opt the okay symbol and sacrifice that. Yeah. Let's co-opt clowns, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so just viewing this as this kind of like this God of cancellation emerge and they want to cancel, they want to eat up celebrities. They want to eat up all kinds of images yeah, and yeah. eat up culture itself and maybe yeah. human life itself. Yeah. Right. And so that was sort of the idea I was uh, speculating <laughs> yeah. with. And so instead of human sacrifice, maybe the a need for image sacrifice is occurring right yeah. now. Yeah, cancel water. It's too pure. It's ethnically yeah, yeah, yeah. pure. We can only drink diluted water. We need that diversity in them water molecules. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Right, right. Yeah, that's cool. I see that. I mean, well, certainly it's the case that you get runaway trains of people looking to be, of seeing outrage in different places. And look, at the level of Twitter following I have, which is absolutely minimal, I've only had a very few things occur, but this was like a year and a, a year and a, a year ago now. And I'd been sharing at the time my own memes. They're a tribe of one which were various, you know, Jungian quotes attached to artwork that I liked and not just Jungian quotes, different philosophical quotes and what have you. And just as I was going through and researching for my dissertation or just for my general education, was just sharing them out there. And I'd, you know, attracted a, every so often there'd be someone on Twitter, or a couple of people on Twitter who I would notice would like a few posts in a row. And mm-hmm. I'd be like, oh, they're digging one. That's cool. You know, there's a couple of people looking at this stuff. But, you know, those people were not affiliated with it. I hadn't said anything political. And then I, re- I retweeted a tweet that I saw about the reforestation of England. And that actually, according to this article, at some point last year, or it was scheduled to re- reach in a few years, I'm not exactly sure, England had, or Great Britain had got back to a place of forestation that I hadn't had for many hundreds of years. It was like a good thing, you know, like, hey, we've planted that many trees that actually there's a lot of trees about and we should be happy about that. And I just retweeted it, didn't say anything. I was like, oh, it's cool. Right. And this, this woman, like she, this woman just immediately responded, included me in a, in a, with a, with a bunch of other people. And she just railed against me for being a shill for oil companies <laughs> and things like this, just, immediately immediately on on my back so yes look you do see these things happen and of course of course it's a very popular thing that people look to see their own little pet 
triggers activated their own it's like affirms their worldview and you can see how in some sense it gives people security to label and find um genuine icons of yeah that that that, that affirm their worldviews in these cases and and sometimes those icons are real but that there's this runaway train of of this putting people down this wanting to be that virtuous be wanting to be that pure it's very dangerous on the on the purity grounds right when people start like i've heard it spoken about the like a, a big player in genocide i'm pretty sure is uh the psychological measure of disgust disgust sensitivity mm-hmm. as a measure of conscientiousness right. there's something i think jordan peterson makes this point when he talks about you know he read mein kampf hitler's work and studied the Nazis and made note of the frequent usage of this Hitler as mentioning how he, he wanted the Germans to be a pure body and his references were always to this theme of purity and what right, violates right. that like and what do you do with something that's that's impure what do you do with vermin what do you, you know in your house you exterminate them so it's mm-hmm. you can see how the cancelling and the extermination i mean cancelling is very much like a, it's like the reality tv version <laughs> it's it's like someone's right, identity is right. tied into this let's cancel them you know but um yeah no i'm with you i think that's cool i think i think that they're two terms that image sacrifice and cancel culture i think i think they're they're worthy additions to this to this conversation and there's like a, just I'm really putting myself at the edge of my thinking right now and, and might enter some poetic territory. But let's just say if this cancel culture kind of gets detached from its original purpose of sort of policing, you know, the purity of the woke tribes. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of like this hungry force to just cancel for its own sake. Right. The cancel right. God emerges. Right. Um, and this culture war, this, this sort of like uh, confused soup that we're living in, it's really uh, damaging our collective sense making, right? And I like to view it as an existential crisis that prevents us from addressing other existential crises, right? And so while this cancel God is canceling everything, mm-hmm. right? It's just kind of setting up us to be canceled as a human race right. if we don't address these existential oh, God. Uh, threats. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure out how to like maybe more link that more articulately in, in, in an essay format, but that's sort of an idea that I'm playing with. Yeah. Look, worthy idea. I mean, one thing I would point to, of course, is that there's many tendencies within us, um, many tendencies, even staying within this field of mimetic identification into these different tribes. There are many versions of those, I think, that are setting us up to be cancelled, right? I think if you take only the black pill and fall into some sort of nihilistic spin, then this is a problem. And look, there's many nihilists out there that say, you don't understand nihilism. Nihilism is actually emancipatory because then once you understand that there's no objective meaning, you know, then you can just create your own meaning. And it's like, okay, well, there's a big conversation to get into there. I would say that most people who embody nihilism do not engage actively in a certain kind of meaning making that is adaptive, well, over any period of time, apart from the immediate short term gratification one but that's an interesting conversation and we don't have to go into that here i have big interest in nihilism and in meaning and what have you just spoke to john viveki yesterday which had a really awesome conversation there i really enjoyed john's appearance on your podcast so i recommend everybody go listen to that on the intellectual explorers club so i Mm -hmm. hope to talk to john many more times i think that was a really good conversation and i think 
coming to understand the meaning crisis and what meaning is requires levels of analysis far beyond the the, the cultural you know understanding historical development of our cognition and the metaphysical basis for reality as such i think that's also involved as well you have the physiological level and what it is to be in states of flow and and um, and you want to talk about religion and nutrition and all these kind of things all of that folds into understanding the felt phenomenon of being in meaningful relationship with but so okay so maybe that brings us to these to these crises then and mm. there are six we have the secularization and the meaning crisis we have the fragmentation and the reality crisis we have the atomization and the belonging crisis we have the globalization and the proximity crisis we have the stimulation and sobriety crisis and we have the weaponization and the warfare crisis now you also do this really nice one line descriptions of each of these crises so perhaps it's worth me just reading those out too if that's all right with you and then and then you know you can decide what one you'd like to comment on mainly because we won't have time to get to them all and they're very very interesting all of them so right. the meaning crisis weakened our collective understanding of what ought to be and these are all quotes the reality crisis fractured our collective understanding of what is the belonging crisis took away a genuine feeling of community the proximity crisis removed distance from conflicting views the sobriety crisis reduced our agency and turned us into addicts the warfare crisis transformed our minds into weapons for hidden wars in plain sight yeah and just when you're reading that out i'm like oh man this, this is depressing yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. well probably Situation. we could probably put our heads together and come up with some other crises as well right as well it's uh this is a good six right, to right. start with this is some issues we have going on here yeah i don't know how much i have to add to that uh that kind of that summary but it's sort of like the the first two the meaning crisis and uh, the reality crisis and i guess maybe the reality crisis could have been dubbed the sense making crisis right. or the truth crisis right. um sort of like you know how each map of reality has sort of an is and an ought yes right what uh, a descriptive a description of what reality is and then what reality ought to be um and collectively you know the argument was like when say the the, the christian memeplex dominated uh, a certain portion of our planet you know there was a shared is and ought a shared map of reality but now there's not right right and there's no kind of a, a agreed upon epistemic way to figure out what is truthful or sort of a, a formula moral formula in order to figure out what we should do and that's obviously problematic if we want to get along together right yeah, on many, many different levels yeah i don't know if you have any prompt question prompts um because i can go down many different different threads with these these crises question prompts i uh, generally i'll just wind myself into some sort of imaginary <laughs> projective gear don't worry don't yeah um well let's see what what comes up for me in these kind of things well these are all interrelated to some degree right let me see what let me see what i can do with this we have this meaning crisis we have in some sense this part of us that requires feeling affectively involved or engaged in a process of becoming of growth that's you know i'm putting in a lot of my own you know assumptions and premises here into what i think meaning is but if you'll allow me that meaning 
to be in meaningful relationship with is to be in something like a growth relationship towards transformation you know and jordan peterson would say something like meaning is roughly proportional to the responsibility you take up but i would but that responsibility as an individual is something that's embedded in a collective and so your responsibility becomes responsibility for the creation of habitable order which can only be understood in terms of this mesh collective net these are all things he'd agree with it's just that individuals have agency within this space so if we take meaning as something like a relationship of transformation and growth within self that's in touch with reality we could say many more things about it but let's go with that we have the challenge of relating this meaning making effectively engaged part of us with what we can propositionally take the world to be so they're the the reality crisis given the development of culture and this is interlinked with the proximity crisis and globalization um, which you make note of as good fences make good neighbors and the power of media has flattened all social fences um, we have here this need for community but and also in some important sense we feel as though we like we we have these um we have connections to the memes of other people around us just like that right there, there is no distance between us things have been strangely flattened yet we're also often we have this feeling of isolation moving into the sobriety crisis then we have um well much of our cognitive machinery that's actually very helpful for us can be made maladaptive um, the things we pay attention to as salient, and this is a point John Bavaki makes very well, what we pay attention to as salient gets into this strange feedback loop with, well, it can be co-opted, right? Like we can, we can, it can be a race to the bottom of attention. We can use things that for evolutionary reasons trigger um, and just general cognitive reasons trigger our salient. So it's like, oh, that screen's presented really nicely. That meme triggers me in this way that face is, is attractive in this way that's disgusting in that way those words get me in that way and it glues your attention to it and mm. so see you you make the the adaptive instincts turn maladaptive due to exposure to super normal stimuli the rise of the attention econ economy making us mimetic addicts and you give the beautiful example of the the jewel beetle uh, the male jewel beetle um <laughs> confusing Aussie beer stubbies with a female jewel beetle and in trying to have sex with it, getting uh, getting killed for long exposure to the sun. And there's a similar thing, right? We're being attracted to the wrong things and it's, it's having us not be able to pay attention to these other things. So all of these crises kind of correlate to each other. And then that brings us on to six and perhaps this is what we can then talk about because all of this process, all of these difficulties we're finding ourselves in, they can be weaponized and are being weaponized, whether it's by foreign governments, whether it's by NGOs with particular attitudes towards the world, whether it's by elites with economic interests. You know, everyone wants a piece of the pie, right? We are, we are, being, um, we are being manipulated this way and that almost everywhere we go by memes and well, that's very bloody dangerous. So for the sobriety crisis, I'll comment on the sobriety crisis and the warfare crisis. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's something that I'm wrestling with right now because I recognize one of the things that are 
harmful towards my personal sovereignty and agency is Twitter, right? right. And social media mm-hmm. right now, because it's like, I find that I have to kind of say like, I'm, I'm what I'm trying to do right now, like, okay, only once or twice a week, I go on for 30 minutes. And that's what I'm allotted uh, the time I'm allotted for. Mm-hmm. Right. But then I find like, when I kind of like, well, I, I, I want to escape whatever thing I'm doing. Uh, and then I go on and it's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in that rabbit hole. And then I'm like crafting these, these, these provocative tweets <laughs> and I'm getting likes on them. And then I'm like, you know, then you're angling your tweet. Like, you can be a lot more uh, propositionally sound. You can guard your premise more. But like, oh, that doesn't sound sexy enough. Like, if I just kind of take out this maybe, then they're like, ooh, it would be really tight. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So then you just get trapped in this 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 kind of uh, addictive uh, cycle. And so I feel like I need to, like, really just personally take myself away from it. Um, and then there's this, uh, you know, uh, Connor and I were thinking of writing this article. We were, we're uh, putting on a hold for now. But it's this uh, the outrage porn industrial complex. Right. There's like this idea of outrage porn, mm-hmm. which is the I think we, we said it was a supernormal stimuli of the culture war. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, the studies have showed that outrage causes us to want to spread memes. Mm-hmm. Right. And if we're operating in an attention economy, what's going to be encouraged in that case? Then if, it, if it's the, the objective is the profit motive and it's just to capture our eyeballs is to uh, engage in outrage porn. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it works. Mm-hmm. And then this is, uh, and this idea that I'm playing with is that our whole cult, we don't have a culture anymore, right? A culture is sort of like a shared values and customs that bind us together. Our shared values and custom is, is engaging this outrage porno, right? Our culture has been uh, replaced by an outrage porno. And it's just sort of like, you know, the, the idea of 1984, perpetual war, mm-hmm. perpetual outrage. That's what we're engaged in mm-hmm. right now. Right. And, um, and it's really making us all sort of medic addicts. We reduced our agency. Uh, and it's a, it's a huge problem um, because I know when I go down that uh, social media addiction cycle, I'm less happy. I feel less strong. I feel less powerful. I'm not bringing what I can bring forth into the world as, be- as best as I can. And there's, there's, a, there's a tremendous amount of incentives in order for us to be these, these, these addicts. And then this warfare crisis is that like, this idea that there's un, like World War Three is already happening in the mimetic landscape, right? And happening in the noosphere. Mm-hmm. And this is unseen battle happening in our eyes. Well, it's a seen battle uh, with our minds, our collective minds. And from like mimetic mercenaries like Cambridge Analytica, from like foreign states like Russia or China, uh, from lone wolf hackers, everyone is trying to weaponize our minds to meet their own ends. Yes. Right. And then you've got the, the culture war profiteers who, uh, you know, are engaging in outrage porn in order to make a buck. And so we're, I like the idea that we're all complicit in this. Uh, we are all consumers and producers of this outrage porno. Yeah, right. The phenomenon of outrage in our times is clearly it's self-evidently um, there when you spend any amount of time online. Um, and, you know, of course, also when you're in touch with what the trigger points are for people, perhaps in the world as well. But what's interesting, what's what's I think important to stress here is that there is a, <laughs> I'm going to do this. There is a transcendent ground beneath the outrage. There is a ground of genuine human connection and there is an inexhaustible fount of love to tap into. Now, unfortunately, and well, necessarily, that love is wrapped around, in many cases, uh, resentment for the conditions of being. And it's a bit of a challenge. You want to get down to the metaphysical level. There's there's this oppositional tension. And, you know, it's not all, I'm not saying it's all roses. But the reality is, is that 
you can walk around and like just yesterday, you know, every day try and find these moments for gratitude and, and, and I'm fortunate to have many meaningful relationships in my life and continue to pursue meaningful interactions with people. And in almost all cases, really, in fact, look, even with the odd schizophrenic on the street or homeless person who for whatever reason I come into contact with and the moment is right for me to engage in some sort of interaction there, maybe they're in some physical altercation with someone and you can just kind of separate it a bit or maybe just you catch you catch a little fragment of the ramblings of someone and it's like a little opening for you to participate in. It's like that connection can be found all over the place and everyone, everyone's just looking for that in so many ways. And that place of communion, that place of, of uh, coming into right relationship with people really is, it really is there. And, and, and we can get lost so much in the, in the intellectualization of, the conflicts we find ourselves in and look it's not like that isn't valid and necessary you know i i really believe it is necessary to come to ever more keenly defined analytic formulations of where we're at um, as a culture and as individuals but there's something about the non-intellectual embodiment of shared humanity in the moment that is that is must right. always be present for the revolutions of this transformative cycle of culture and of civilization and of meaning to continue. So I think that's something worth stressing and it, it brings us to a further place in conversation as we have probably about 10, 15 minutes to go here, which is something else I also admire a lot about what you're doing, certainly take inspiration from and you, term one of the responses to this broad gestalt we've now put forward over the last hour, this this culture war 2.0 constituted by these various crises. One response as, and we've sort of already, what I've already spoken about there is a little bit as about philosophy as a way of being and not just discourse. It's tapping into this right. actual embodiment of some of this stuff. But one term you use is, and we've spoken about gray pilling, we've spoken about mimetic mediators. We've spoken about, collective consciousness and collective intelligence a little bit. But here's one term, it's the Hippocratic Oath, which you define as hmm. values of commitment to good faith discourse, analogous to something like the Geneva Convention. And you do this thing on your Intellectual Explorers Club podcast, you have a spoken affirmation that you take into the conversation. And as I understand it, it's your attempt to, yes, yeah, set the container, right, for coming into this right relationship of discourse. So I wonder if, if you can talk a, a little bit about what you mean by the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's timely that you, you asked this question. Um, I'm going to answer that. Uh, I do want to comment on a few things that you mentioned sure. uh, that came up. Um, so I think they're relevant. I, I don't want to lose them. So just to kind of close that, that thread on the, the outrage, you know, I think outrage is a good thing. And like uh, Aristotle talks mm -hmm. about outrage is like a healthy sure, mean, right? Sure. And so if someone attacks my, my family, um, I'm going to get outraged and I'm going to defend yep. them and I'm going to fight that person, yep. right? I'm going to stop him. So when, the, when we see great evils in the world, we're going to get outraged, rightfully so. And we want to, and, and it hopefully will motivate us to action. 
But I think outrage porn makes us impotent, right? It makes us doesn't make us lead to action. Mm-hmm. Where where healthy outrage mm-hmm. makes us want to mm-hmm. act, and toxic outrage or outrage porn prevents action, right? Just like how real porn prevents sex from occurring, mm-hmm. right? It's a stimulated. Um, sex and stimulated outrage. And so I, th- I do think outrage is good, but then the, this current uh, sort of use of outrage is not healthy. The other thing that uh, that you said, uh, what I liked is that uh, kind of this, this transient or transcendent kind of component of the, the humanness there that, that gets lost and we can get lost in this kind of a cognitive realm. And I think it's um, engaging in spiritual practices is, is, is very important, very critical. And sort of my crude or my, my placeholder understanding of spirituality is overcoming the state of uh, disconnectedness, right? And is, is becoming connected to the whole. Mm-hmm. And I actually just, when I started talking about this, I feel, I don't know, I just got a wave of connectedness <laughs> overcoming, which was interesting. But when I find when I engage regularly in a spiritual practice, my desire to love is greater than my desire to be loved. Mm. And uh, I think you can you can approach this like um, sort of have uh, perennial uh, tendencies. I think you can approach this from various different traditions and, 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 and experience that state. And I also would say that um, having the capacity when I'm being meta, when I'm playing the meta game and then just and my understanding of the meta game is just taking yourself out of your own finite game and then looking at all the finite games non-judgmentally. that when I can get into that liminal state more often, my desire to be outraged or engage in outrage porn becomes less and less, right? So I do think maybe even being meta in that sense is a spiritual practice in itself. Yes. And then, uh, you know, I'll comment on the, the Hippocratic Oath of the, the culture war. Uh, and then, I'll, you know, then if you have any uh, responses to what I said, I'd love to hear it. Uh, well, I said that's, that's timely because Connor and I uh, pivoted. Uh, we, we were just kind of, Connor is my co-author. Uh, he's a great collaborator with this. Uh, we're kind of like fancying ourselves as culture war analysts. Yeah. And we're currently... I don't know if we're going to finish it. I hope we are, but we're currently writing the Hippocratic Oath of the Culture War, the first uh, uh, first version of cool. it, right? And I just drafted the kind of ten uh, um, aspects of it. And so, for the, for the listeners who are not familiar, the Hippocratic Oath is an oath that uh, people who engage in medicine used to take, right? And it's sort of like um, a statement that they read out loud in order to ground themselves in the principle of how to be a good practitioner of, of medicine, to be a good doctor. And people who finish medical school still uh, still do it in sort of a traditional sense. It doesn't hold any sort of weight uh, as it once did, but they still, they still say it as sort of a, a traditional oath. And then the argument there, their, the flirtatious speculation there is that if more journalists, bloggers, Anybody who engages in, in creating mimetic artifacts, right, it's like they, they read this oath out loud and then maybe they film themselves and they have mm-hmm. it and then maybe there could be a badge there, mm-hmm. right, you can put it on your blog or your, your Twitter handle or something saying that you're trying to uphold that standard of that oath. And the, the rough draft that we're kind of creating right now is sort of like engaging good faith dialogue, right, uh, have intellectual humility, uh, approach a situation that, you know, I could be wrong, yes. right? Have that caveat under your whatever your statement yes. that I could be wrong, um, stuff like that. And so that's sort of the idea. Like I, I'm, I'm not, again, it's just a, a playful speculation, but I think that might pick up some steam if enough people uh, engage in it. Yeah, man, for sure. Look, that's something I've I've been thinking about a lot. Which is what are the values that I am basing, or that must be infused in the community and the project and how I embody this whole process and intellectual humility is one of them. There's absolutely no doubt. I think I mentioned one before this um, belief in the dignity of the human spirit, 
and the other one is commitment to authentic truth seeking and it's something similar it's like what do you take in to not just discussion but relating in general right what do you take into relating with human beings that enables you to yeah have i mean people use the, the terms good faith discourse i find good i have to, the, the good faith discourse meme i i I get a little bit of a, it's something a little dry about it. And I like Sam Harris as a man. I think he's a good dude. And I think as well, he communicates very well. And um, I respect him. The good faith dialogue memes that surround like Sam Harris and some of the other guys, for some reason I find good faith dialogue, good faith. It's a bit dry to me. I don't know why. Partly because of course there's Sam Harris. He, you know, <laughs> it's not like, it's a bit of a contradiction there. The man doesn't really think much of faith. But could, could I could I please, comment on please. that like real brief like this uh, there's this term uh, I really like called weaponized meta language mm. right uh, it's a book from uh, why we argue or how we argue um, uh, introduced it and it's just the idea that when you when you create a meta language to explain a phenomenon or like something like good faith dialogue and even though it could be propositionally sound mm -hmm. if a certain kind of tribe or certain person uses it right and then it's it gets dirtied really yeah. quickly right yeah. And then, and then, so it's like something you don't want to use. And so that, I, I had the same feeling over sort of the, that term as yeah. well, uh, good face. We might not use it, but uh, I, I do think there's um, a sort of like, uh, you know, what we talked about earlier about having the spirit of understanding is sometimes all you need, even though if you get their, their map of reality wrong. Yes, yes. Look, um, I had a chat with Daniel Thorson of the Emerge podcast. I know you guys recorded a podcast recently. I don't know if it's been published or, or if it has. Um, but, you know, we also spoke a little bit about this together. And I'll record a podcast with Daniel, I suppose, over the next over the coming months. And we sort of recognize that there are a bunch of us out there interested in just this kind of thing. And it's important to and I, I'm, I'm interested in what I and mean, we can talk about this more off air but what ways we can actually collaborate to try and do this as well as possible because well it would put into practice a lot of the things we're talking about valuing in many respects right this whole notion of coming into some sort of collective space of exploration to yeah figure out like interesting ways forward in in getting clear on what some of these values are so anyway if you would like to talk about some of that stuff we can we can chat about it afterwards because i do think that getting that right not that it would be final, but there's a lot of philosophy that underlies some of these commitments, right? And um, right. there's a lot of fertile uh, discussion points to be had there. Maybe I'll say this, and this could be a call to action to uh, the listeners right yeah. now, because I did have a chat with uh, Daniel Thornston um, last weekend. And, you know, and similar with you, like I feel with Daniel, there's like a, like a brotherhood there. Yeah. Right. There's a kinship. And like I, I just met Daniel, I just met you, but we're all seem like we're kind of intrigued, interested by the same phenomenon and we're kind of like riding the same wave. Yeah. Um and we kind of we touched on you touched on this earlier, like there's this sort of informal community with the metamodernists, Rally Point Alpha, Rebel Wisdom, all these guys are in this in the same kind of uh, space. And there's there's something that's uh, occurring in Jordan uh, Greenhall. Jordan Hall is, is big into this, and the authentic relating movement is big into this. Is this uh, intersubjective meditation uh, practice, mm -hmm. right? What they call we spaces, and having kind of a container where dialogue. Uh, I won't say good faith dialogue, but dialogue can occur with these certain values or principles. 
And I'm, I'm wondering out loud is if, if this could, if we can create something that happens online in digital spaces and adjacent to that could happen in our respected cities, yeah. right? Which could be scalable, right? So other people can engage in this in, in other cities and engage in it online. Uh, and I think that would be a wonderful thing because people want to get out of this outrage porno. <laughs> it doesn't lead to happiness, yeah. right? It doesn't lead to uh, idea sex yeah. in a way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Look, I mean, I'm definitely open to pursuing something like this. I mean, because concretely here in Melbourne, this is something I am um, already doing. You know, I'm getting people together. I'm trying to have these conversations, whether it's after a, a lecture that we watch or I think we spoke about before off air a couple of weeks ago about conversations at dinner and different kinds of business models for bringing people together for meaningful discussion. And yes, I see, I see lots of ways, or at least I see, I see an, I see an, I feel an energy and I think there's an importance and yeah, we'll see what comes of it. But you know, we're getting close to wrapping up here. There were a couple of things you mentioned before about the the meta game, the movement to being meta and the analogy there with respect to the connectedness and spirituality. And the more you are in that way of being, the more you want to give love rather than necessarily receive it. I thought that was a nice link. And I do think that there's it's a congruent link and there'd be plenty of things we could we could talk about and riff on there, but I don't feel an in, an incredible need to. I feel the um, yeah, I feel this has been yeah really enjoyable for me, man. It's been a, it's been a good conversation. Yeah, man. Likewise, um, and just to speak on my state, I feel very excited, uh, like alive in a very um, healthy way. Mm -hmm. And I experienced this last time we just chatted. So mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's something uh, specific to you that engenders this quality. But usually I get this when uh, um, I land uh, on a good dialogue. Yeah, man. No, me too. And it's what it's all about, hey. So yeah, dude, Peter, we're going to have many more of these conversations, mate. And we'll actually hang around. Hang around for just a couple minutes after this. But I will end the broadcast now actually no i won't do you want to say anything do you want to say anything um finally about where people can get in touch with you or or anything like that right yeah um so you can support my uh twitter addiction by following me at uh peter and limberg you know my my dms are i think that's what you call them are open so feel free to reach out and chat if you want to collaborate on anything that was mentioned here read that the white paper follow the the podcast intellectual explorers club Dot com is the website it's on spotify apple all that type of stuff anchor um yeah that's it for now well i'll include all those links different places and yeah one more time thank you very much thank you my friend it was a treat <laughs>